Hi, and welcome to episode seven of the Distinctive Leaders podcast with me, your host, Andrew Wallace. Today's guest is Kenton Cool, world-class mountaineer, leadership expert, and coach. Considered one of the world's top high-altitude mountaineers, Kenton has reached the summit of Everest an incredible 15 times. His experiences have given him a deep insight into what motivates people and the resilience needed to succeed. During this episode, we discuss how he has learned to take adversity in his stride, what it takes to lead in some truly extreme environments, and how you can replicate that approach in a variety of environments. If you want to understand the secret of creating accountable teams who all pull in the same direction, Kenton is the man to listen to. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. So first of all, welcome Kenton Cool to Distinctive Leaders. It's an absolute joy to have you here and uh, thank you very much for agreeing to, uh, to be our guest today. And I always love uh, asking our guests about their upbringing, what got them to where they are today. So I would just love to take you back to that young Kenton. What was going through your mind? What you thought you might do? And I know because you've shared this with me before about this, how you overcame the shyness, if you like, to pursue the career that you have. So tell me about the younger you. No, fantastic. I mean, firstly, I want to say thank you for having me here. It really is an honor and a privilege to be sat opposite you. Do I call you Andrew or do I call you Wally? Either's fine. <laughs> Either's fine. Thank goodness for that. Just not Andrew. <laughs> uh, just not Andrew. <laughs> but a, a, a younger me, a younger Kenton, uh, looking back, I, I was incredibly shy. I had struggled even to go into a shop to to buy something. You know, if, if my mother said, uh, park the car up, you know, Kenton running, go and get a pound of tomatoes or whatever it was, yeah, I, I would almost have an anxiety attack over it. The, the whole interaction, a social interaction I, I really struggled with and, and to a degree still do today. I'll give you an example, you know, we, we all know roughly how to work a room when we're networking. And for me, I need to be totally in the right frame of mind to be able to come out of my shell and, and to interact with people that I perhaps think I don't have anything in common with, uh, which is such a sort of fundamental mistake because we have everything in common if for no other reason than we're all humans. But yeah, the, the, the younger me, I was super lucky. I was born in Slough, which is not particularly well known for its mountaineers, its skiers. <laughs> come friendly bombs, come rain on Slough, I think were the immortal words of Sir John Betjeman. But I was super lucky in so much that I grew up in the corner of a farm field. We didn't own the farm. We just had a tiny, weeny wooden bungalow. And my, my father was very much invested into the outdoors. He was a scout leader. We were forever going into the woods to cut down firewood. To, you know, we had a wood-burning stove to heat the water. You know, we were walking the dog. We were jumping over fences. Everything that, that young boys and girls in, in many ways should be doing. And you know, it, I, I learned a lot from that, but perhaps what I didn't learn was how to then adapt that skill set into a social environment. And it's something which I, I really did struggle with and still do, as I mentioned, certainly up to university. 
And then all of a sudden you're, you're thrown into a completely different environment where you're on your own, you're no longer at home, you don't have that comfort zone of having your parents do something for you. And it really is sink or swim. And, you, and you, you've mentioned, I mean, you just mentioned your, your father there, but you, you've mentioned before just what an influence he was. In what way, it, 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 obviously getting you interested in the outdoors, but in what other ways did he, did he really have that influence? I, I think he was a very value-driven individual. We grew up in, in commuter belt, but not having to any money at all. My father was in, unemployed for a lot of his, uh, well, a lot of my teenage years. And he instilled in, in me a I, I suppose an ability to find solutions uh, when you have no money uh, and my parents really didn't have any money it's just simple things like sticking your your the, the sole of your shoe back on putting blakeys in the heels to stop them wearing out uh darning trousers or socks to to make them last that little bit longer and uh, and on the other on the other hand uh, on the other side of things Something which came from that was was the fact that both my sister and I would never have the latest gear. So we would never have the, the latest fashion brand or the trainers or and, and with that, because we grew up in a relatively affluent area, a certain stigma comes with it. Uh, you don't have well, I remember one t-shirt manufacturer distinctly Gallini, I think it was called. I don't think they exist anymore. It's about a big balloon. Yeah, yeah. No, but it was the big, uh, big yeah, one and, of the brands. And, yeah. and, and everybody had Gallini t-shirts or sweatshirts and, and we didn't or I didn't. And there's a certain stigma that goes with that. You're not part of the tribe. You're not part of the, 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 the clan unless you had one of these. And at the time it was difficult, but I look back on it and being an outlier, being outside of the group is actually quite special. It allows you or it gives you the opportunity to grow and flourish in your own way without necessarily any preconceived ideas about this is how you should look or operate or behave. Uh, and, and looking back on it, it took many, many, many years for me to understand that. I just remember at school being horrified of you know, wearing stuff from the charity shop or hand-me-downs at just did not fit in with everybody else. And as I mentioned, at the time, it was really hard. And if I sort of take you from the really young Kenton through to sort of university Kenton, talk about the sort of real influence that that had in terms of where are you now in terms of the Shiner scale? Where are you now in terms of this, you know, thinking about what you might want to do? Well, I mean, university was the catalyst where i am today without a shadow of a doubt we were talking before recording this podcast uh yeah we were both riffing on how important university is or isn't and i i, I do truly believe that certainly today we are expected to go to university it is open to everybody which is a good thing and a bad thing I, I believe actually that life experiences, for, for me, university was a life experience. I've never used my degree, not once. I've got a 2-1 in geology. I climb mountains. You would think, oh yeah, but you can recognize the rock types that you are climbing. It's irrelevant really in mountaineering, whether it's a microschist or granite or a limestone, it is rock, simple as that. But university was for me a total eye-opener. Yeah, I got there very much out of my comfort zone, having to form relationships with 
people that I thought I had nothing in common with, uh, tremendously shy, really struggling with the whole fresher week thing, struggled to a certain extent with the lack of pressure because I came from a grammar school. I passed my 12 plus, went to grammar school and there was a certain pressure there to perform, to hand in your homework or your work on Monday or Friday, whatever day it was. And, and all of a sudden you go to university and there is no pressure and there isn't somebody leaning over you cracking the whip saying you need to hand this work in or this assignment and for me that that was a huge learning right there and then overlay that I, I found the climbing club the Leeds University mountaineering club which at the time was a very vibrant club huge amounts of enthusiasm and I fell in with a cohort of people that for me was perfect you know the the energy the vibrance the enthusiasm and and all of a sudden i started to see people from different backgrounds and i began to realize that it doesn't matter where you're from is who you are that's what counts uh which i hadn't really understood at, at school as i said maybe it, we were full-on commuter belt you know high wickham a lot of money, you know, a lot of drive, a lot of people working in finance and blue collar, uh, white collar jobs rather. And there was a, a certain social standing that comes with that. By the time I got to university and you know, my best friends were from Newcastle or Rotherham or Doncaster. And uh, you, you were just seeing a broader cross section of humankind. And all of a sudden I realized that that social standing, that materialistic wealth, which had underpinned so much, which I thought was important. Uh, that's when I began to realize it was irrelevant. And yeah, I just started to run with the, uh, the climbing club. I do want to touch on something we've talked about before, and I, I, I've learned a great deal from you on this, but you talk very openly about failure and putting failure into perspective, but also the learnings. And again, not to jump around because we've gone for a very young Kenton through to University Kenton, but you, you, you talked a little bit about failing your 11 plus exams as a boy. But again, that's your formative. But I just wanted you to just, what did it teach you about failure at that early stage, but how you've then used it in terms of, you know, as you've grown and how you've put things into perspective just give us a little bit of an insight into, in, yeah, into the, that. Yeah, uh, the education system, you've got to love it and hate it in equal measures. Uh, the way it can pigeonhole children, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't work in the education sector. I, I don't know. Anyway, Friday, it was a Friday, you were given a brown envelope. So we, we sat our 11 plus. And where I grew up, fantastic grammar school systems. So we take the 11 plus. You get given a brown envelope, you go home, you open up the envelope and it tells you whether you've passed or failed. And I failed, uh, which was unexpected. I was super lucky. The school that I went to, you know, it's a great school, a lot of quite clever children. And I, I knew that all my friends, all my buddies would have passed. Uh, Chris Lockyer, Ben Parr, Hardy Takshat, I mean, all these guys. And Friday night used to be scout night. So you go down to scout hut. And, and I just remember saying to my parents, I'm not going. I, I, I'm not going to face my friends knowing that I failed and they've passed. What are they going to do, say, think? And I was in tears, just like, crushed, like utterly crushed. It's the biggest thing I've ever done. And you know, I've failed to step up to the plate. I failed to, to achieve. And I'm a super competitive 
individual. And yeah, and, and I'm, I'm crushed. And, and I'm not going to scales. And I just remember my mother saying, you are going to scales. And my father was the scout leader. So it's not as if there's much excuse. And I get dragged pretty much kicking and screaming to scout. I mean, the shame. You just can't comprehend it. And this was a quite an early learning for me because we get there and you know, there's all the boys. Because at the time, scouts was just for boys. And they've all passed. And there is a little bit of chat about it. And you know, how did you do, Kenton? Well, I failed. And oh, yeah, bad luck, man. And then we just got on with things. And that realization that nobody, I mean, they do care, but it doesn't matter. What you've shared there is just, it's about putting it in perspective. At the time of finding out the result, you were not the best person to put that into perspective, but then the people around you were able to kind of give you that perspective. And I suppose a real parallel for me is, is kind of, there are a lot of people throughout their career that set themselves some big goals. I want to be a managing director or I want to, you know, in your terms, I want to reach that, that summit. I, I suppose in, in many because we are competitive, a lot of us. Um, but even if you're not competitive, it's about putting those things into perspective. And how do you go about doing that? I know you've just sort of said some of the big, horrible stuff. <laughs> it's easier to put it in a cupboard. And, and, and for you, I guess, you've had to deal with an awful lot of that because you have, um, um, as most people would consider, a very high-risk career. But I'm really interested in the parallel here for a lot of people who might be listening is, is how you go about putting that into perspective and, and how you've done that in terms of macro failures or micro failures. But just give us a sort of sense as to sort of how you deal with that. I, I think I'm really lucky. I, I work in a highly dangerous environment uh, where, unfortunately, if we generally get something wrong, there could be death, uh, could be serious injury, cold injuries, i.e. frostbite, you know, loss of fingers, whatever it may be. And with that comes a, a high degree. So your, your senses are on high alert the, the, the whole time. But it happens. At one stage, I took the rather morbid or undertook the rather morbid exercise of working out how many friends or acquaintances I had lost in the mountains and I had been to twice as many funerals as I had weddings. This is in my late 30s. They're completely upside down uh, with how that should be. And part of it, I suppose, you get a little bit dulled to it. Uh, there's, at one stage, there was almost an expectation. You knew that uh, Rich was on expedition with Owl or whatever, and they're off doing something without you. Yeah, which would always happen from time to time and they're out on expedition and telephone would ring and somebody would say have you heard oh god what's it going to be invariably it was oh they're back having not climbed the mountain or but occasionally it was no actually rich has died or ours died or Jules has died and, and no, it, it was real it was very very real very raw and over time you learn to build defense mechanisms to that you try to understand what happened. It's much easier these days with social media, and you can you can pick together you know, what happens a lot. But 
back in the 90s, early 2000s, before we had that. And it was all word of mouth and hearsay and what happened. But you, you try to pick together what happened. And the very best thing that we, well, I always thought we could do is understand what happened and then trying to work out how to avoid that next time. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a lovely book, the um, uh, Munger, Charlie Munger. All he wants to know is where he's going to go, where, where he will die. And then he will avoid going there. They're the same sort of mentality. Yeah. Uh, you know, what happened to Rich? Why did it happen to Rich? And what can I do to avoid it? And I think one of the ways that I dealt with these things was trying to be very logical about it, trying to put emotion to one side and use it as a learning tool. And I think that's one of the very important things to do especially with, with microfailure. Microfailure happens, I believe microfailure happens for a reason. Microfailure will happen and it will present itself as a stepping stone. And it's you know, just a stepping stone on a much bigger journey that we are all on. And we may have a preconceived idea on where we want the, the destination to be at the end of the journey, but invariably fate or destiny takes us somewhere else. And the important thing is to, what I believe is to not necessarily fight that, is we think we have a predestined path, whereas in reality, our path might me meant to be going in a different direction. And micro failures will often steer that direction. Something will happen. And perhaps we, a great example, I, I, I broke my legs back in 96. And as a result of that, I miss going on at the time, a really big expedition to the Cow Quorum in Pakistan. And I, I was devastated. I'm like, this is unfair. You know, not only have I got two broken legs, I'm now missing this expedition, which I've been at the forefront of organizing, and, 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 and. Now, in reality, all these other, other opportunities came my way. And I know it sounds ridiculous. I was in, you know, I'm in a wheelchair. Uh, for three months. For, for three months, yeah. Uh, I'm in hospital for four and a half weeks. I have three operations. And then they try to give me a goddamn Zimmer frame, age like 21. <laughs> no, I'm not having a Zimmer frame. But the, the learnings that came from that adversity really did put me on a, on a, on a very different trajectory than if I had gone on that expedition to the Ogre in Pakistan. I, I truly believe that. My understanding about what true adversity is, my, my empathy levels for other people, it happens for a reason. Now, I, I'm not super religious, I, but I do believe in a karma. I do believe in perhaps a higher power or some description. And these things happen for a reason. And it's our task to use them as, as a stepping stone, as a learning tool. Because we are always going to be faced with you know, what we deem to be failure, or perhaps we can call it non-success, or perhaps we can just call it a hiccup. And we go for a promotion, we don't get it. There's a reason why we haven't got it. There's a reason that maybe we're not good enough. Maybe on the day somebody's better than us. That was a great, I, I love Desert Island Disc. And I was listening to Martina Natatalova, the Czech tennis player. I think she, she ended up in the US. And she was being interviewed, I think not by Kirsty Young, but anyway, she, she's been interviewed. And the question was, do you feel nerves? You're going out on center court at Wimbledon as the final. How do you control your nerves? And she says, oh, I was never nervous. And really, are you never nervous? No, I'm never nervous. Because all I can do is I will go out and I'll play the best game that I can play. And I love my game, by the way. 
And if I'm beaten on the day, and let's face it, she wasn't beaten that often, but and she, if, I, if I'm beaten on the day, it's because somebody is better than me. But the important thing is I know I did, did my best. And I know that's a cliche. And I butted with that mentality for years growing up. My parents would say, I was fiercely competitive. If I didn't get first, I can deem it like it's abject failure. Mum and dad would go, but you tried your best. I'm like, yeah, but my best isn't good enough. But actually, if you do your best, of course it's good enough. And to go back to the question, you fail to get a promotion or you fail to do this, or maybe somebody's just better on the day. And next time you try, maybe you will be better, but, but maybe you're the best on the day that, that time. Yeah. Or maybe it's just not meant to be. Yeah. And actually your energies and efforts go in a different direction. I think, you know, there's a, there's another famous sporting story about Jack Nicholas, who's considered to be the best golfer of all time. And his best comeback to anybody who says that is that, do you know who's got the most second places in golf today? It's him. Right. And, and so therefore by definition, I didn't get first, therefore I'm a loser. So in, in theory, I should be your best loser as well. And I, I think there are some great messages in there for sure. So in times of crisis, a lot of people find it hard to think straight and you know make the important decisions that need to be made. And as someone who's ascended Everest 15 times now, and again, I, I emphasize that just in the sense that when you shattered both of your legs, you hadn't summited once, right? So, no, so you've done 15 since. And again, that, that, that level of kind of picking yourself up and getting yourself there. But I know this sort of crisis leadership is just something that, well, I'm going to say naturally comes to you because I think there is an element of, of, of nature that, and, and there's an element of, of, of nurture. But what makes a good crisis leader? And again, this is highly topical given we've just been through probably one of the biggest crises that most of us will have experienced to date. I mean, times of crisis, I think for me, the... the Let's just take a step back. So when was it? It was trying to imagine the scene. I'll try and scene set for you. It's 2018. We're high in the death zone on Everest. We're above 8,000 meters. In fact, we're about 8,500 meters. And I'm there with the broadcaster, TV personality, Ben Fogel. And all of a sudden, we have a catastrophic auction delivery system failure. So essentially, in layman's terms, his regulator, the device that goes on top of the oxygen bottle, fails. And all his oxygen dissipates into the atmosphere. So 1,200 liters of pure oxygen disappear in about 1.2 seconds. Psst, gone. Oh, my God. It's dark. It's windy. It's pretty goddamn cold. And we're in the death zone. There's no helicopter rescue. Uh, ben starts to panic. And you know, not unsurprisingly, he's so far out of his comfort zone. What do we do? And critical thing for me, at least, is well, there's normally five or six key things, but let's just boil it down. Communication. Communication has got to be succinct and it's got to be really, really clear. The, the level of clarity. Because in that situation, we're dealing with Ben, who's very, very emotional and he's now out of his comfort zone, can't think straight. You know, he's brain's being starved of oxygen we're in the death zone we're dealing with sherpas who english isn't their first language culturally very different uh there for possibly slightly different reasons but that comes back to a you know, the organizational culture which is super super important you know have we got one goal one vision and then it's having the 
bandwidth or having the ability to take a step back and then look at the situation totally objectively. And in that situation, eight and a half thousand meters above sea level, take all emotion out of any form of decision-making. And if we were going to be critical about how our leadership team perhaps has handled the last 18 months, is their hands to a certain extent was tied because they weren't making 100% logical decisions. They just couldn't do it. In a democracy, it's very, very hard to do that. The only time you can really do that in a democracy is a time of war. And there's some really fantastic case studies. Churchill being a you know, really good example. One only needs to look at the film uh, Darkest Hour, which is when Churchill first takes power uh, in 1940, late 39, 1940, and they're trying to get the guys out of Dunkirk. And Churchill essentially sacrifices 5,000 troops at Calais to try to make a diversion. So he sacrifices 5,000 troops at Calais for the greater good of getting 330,000 troops back from Dunkirk. That is a logical base decision. There's no emotion in there because if emotion was in there, he goes, oh, we've got to try to save those 5,000 as well. And it just wouldn't have worked. So 8,500 meters on, on Everest, it is a democracy, but at the same time, we're in an environment that requires 100% logical decision-making. Cut the emotion out what actually needs to be done and it's going to be time critical because ben's got no oxygen so what are the solutions what are our options we need to go through the options extremely quickly we need to broadcast those to all concerned meanwhile we need to isolate ben from the decision making process because he has no he has no being uh, he's, he's got no no reason for being there he's out of his comfort zone uh, he's not got the depth of experience. There's nothing that Ben can add to the conversation which is going to help. If, if anything, he's going to muddle it. So, and you can find it on CNN, actually, or the diluted version on ITV. And it, it's this brilliant footage whereby I'm trying to deal with the situation because we had another failure about an hour later. Mark Fisher was a camera and we're trying to deal with that. Meanwhile, Ben's on his own. And Ben's you know, on TV. Ben says something along the lines, "You know, I'm, I'm on my own. Ken's in the mark, and the Sherpas are below me. Um, you know, I'm feeling a bit isolated." That that was deliberately done to get him out of the decision making process, because all he's going to do is complicate it and muddle it. Right now, we need to know what's happened. I'm not concerned about why it's happened. We can deal with that later. And it, it turns out tiny weenie O-ring deep in the regulation. We were never going to find that out. So we're not going to waste energy on that. It's what's happened? When did it happen? You know, what do we actually know? And what do we need to do to move forward? And does everybody that is in the decision-making sort of process environment, do they know all of those things? And if they don't know, we need to communicate it to everybody. And then when we come up with a solution... We need to communicate that to all the stakeholders and then execute it because there's going to be no second chance. So the key thing is cut the emotion out and keep it 100% logical. Keep the communication lines well and truly open, but keep dialogue succinct to the point and extremely clear. And the, the Sherpas aren't going to understand big, long, complicated words because English isn't their first language. And added to that, you've got an oxygen mask on. So you breathe a bit like that. <laughs> Annie! Annie! 
And then we got catastrophic option delivery system failure. Now, what the hell does that mean? The regulator's broken. Keep it simple. We overcomplicate everything. We look for difficult solutions, whereas more often than not, the solution is simple. And a simple solution, you can execute quicker, and generally, you can execute it more efficiently to get a better outcome. So essentially, communicate, make sure that there is a an accountable team. And again, I, I want to touch on this point because you mentioned it before about personal accountability, and it's absolutely critical to decision making. And I think you've shared before in your experience, and I, I guess in mine as well, there are some people that shy away sometimes from that. But I just was keen to, I guess, it's something that is so important to both you and the corporate world and, you know, in so many other forms of life. What is it about the personal accountability that, in your opinion, just makes a distinctive leader and is just so important? Uh, it, it, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it, it's a bugbear of mine. Uh, I, I come from a high risk environment, working environment, where accountability is everything. If, if there is an issue, just put your hand up. You know, whether, whether it's my fault, somebody else's fault, I, 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 you know, we don't really care. We just need to know. And, and then we can find a solution and we can work for it. Because if we get something wrong in a death zone, it's going to go badly wrong. And is that you know, personal level of accountability? Yeah, if someone holding the hand up, yeah, I'm going to take responsibility for that and I'm going to do that. And what I find in the corporate environment is people can hide behind multiple lev levels of responsibility or lack of accountability. Or There is a, a, a modicum of safety in corporate environments whereby, and this is generalization, People will try to offset personal responsibility, chunk it left, chunk it right, chunk it up, chunk it down, or whatever it is. It's like, well, it's not my fault because it came late from procurement. Or uh, that, that wasn't action because logistics said this. Or it doesn't matter. Now, take responsibility for what it is. Now, the buck's got to stop somewhere. And more often than not, if you do take responsibility, people are going to trust you more. People are going to have more respect for you rather than hiding in the shadows, not wanting to step up to the plate and go, I'll action that. Yeah, and when it goes wrong, just say, it's my fault. It went wrong because of X, Y, Z, A, B, C. But just be open and honest about it. Don't try to offset it somewhere else. And unfortunately, the more I operate in the corporate environment, the more I see that there is a lack of accountability because people are somewhat in fear of th th their jobs, their livelihoods. And that's a cultural thing because a big organization should have one vision. They should have one goal that they're striving toward. And the culture should represent that. And when I have dropped into organizations, more often than not, it's not that. It's not a collaborative moving forward it's as a bunch of indi individuals looking after themselves which unfortunately generates a very inefficient way of working but it also generates you know, a blame culture because i'm not going to accept responsibility i'm going to blame it on joe down the corridor because i'm in fear of losing my job and and, and that's that's purely culture that's that's a poor culture that's been set by the leadership team or the management team. Whereas if the culture is right, 
then people are invested in it. All individuals want then is for the organization to win, to be the best operator it can be in whatever sector or whatever environment it is. And if somebody makes a mistake, invariably, they're going to be the first people to say, uh-oh, this has just happened. Yeah, we need to deal with this because this is going to hiccup where we're going. And notice the where we are going, not where I am going. Whereas more often than not, people look at it and go, uh-oh, that's going to hiccup where I want to go. Because I want to move up or I want to do that. Get the culture right. And then that accountability will simply follow. And that's what we've tried to do with our Sherpa team. We try to generate a culture whereby they want to work with us. You know, we are a team. Uh, Dorji, for instance, I've worked, so Dorji Gelgin is my number one Sherpa. I've worked with him now for uh, 17, 18 years. He's my immediate go-to when I'm putting a team together. And a few years ago, there was a, like a little hiccup. Dorji said, no, I can't work. My wife said, you know, there's a big disaster on Everest. You know, you know, I can't work on the mountain anymore. And I sat down with him and his wife and the family and we, we, we talk it through. And, you know, Dorji, you know, I, I really want you to be, to be part of what we're pulling together. I can't, I'm not going to ask you to be part of it. I'm not going to offer you more money. I'm not going to do, you know what we do. We know, you know how important you are to what we're trying to do. And all I can promise you is that you know, we will generate the culture that hopefully you will feel safe and be part of. And, and that's exactly what happened. You know, Dorji came back into the fold because he knew that culturally we were there as one. We weren't there as a bunch of individuals. We were there with one vision, with one goal of doing the, you know, giving the very best service to our clients, which by the way, is not necessarily getting them to the top of the mountain. It's bringing them back through the front door. But what I love about that story as well is, is knowing the backstory to how Dorji helped you too. I mean, you know, you were on an extraordinary mission to do a first, which was to climb Nupsi, Everest and Lotsi all in one go. And you both got called to help another climber. Mr. Um, Lee. Yeah. Mr. Lee. And the code of the mountain is you get the call, you you have to go. And, and you know, you did an extraordinary thing of, of trying to resuscitate, not for minutes, not for tens of minutes, but hours. And I think you were utterly shattered. You'd done two peaks. You were about to do the third. And, and just tell us about how Dorji helped you, because obviously you're talking here about a very deep relationship where it is give and take in terms of yeah, how you help each other. Massively so. And I, I think your example there, uh, Andy, is, you know, is, is remarkable in so much that I, I think it really truly sums up the importance of, of culture. We were trying to do well, it's become known as Triple Crown. So Everest, obviously the highest mountain in the world. Lhotse, right next door, the fourth highest mountain in the world. And Nupsi, the 19th highest mountain in the world. And at the time, and, and actually to date, nobody has ever repeated it. So we did it in seven days. And we climbed Nupsi, we climbed Everest, and then the hiccup occurs on Lhotse. And we spend all night trying to keep Mr. Lee alive. I had sent Dorji off to bed, uh, for want of a better word. Because there was no, there's no point two of us being in there in the tent with Mr. Lee. Uh, ultimately, we were unsuccessful in keeping Mr. Lee alive. And I remember the radio in the morning. I don't know. I forget what time it was. It was seven, eight o'clock in the morning. And um, being up on and off all night with Mr. Lee. And the radio comes in and it's my base camp manager, Henry. Uh, and Henry's saying, what are you going to do? You know, what are your next steps? And I'm like, oh, Henry, I'm t- 
totally over this. You know, this isn't what I signed up for. I was offsetting blame to of Mr. Lee's death to uh, another operator over there. I don't know if that was right or wrong, but that, that, that's that's what I was doing. I, was, I felt very bitter that I'd been put in, into this situation because people weren't being accountable. You know, we can, we can loop, loop it back in. Mr. Lee had been there for three or four days. And if the team or we, when I say we, I, I mean the sort of collective at base camp had known about that earlier, Mr. Lee, I have no doubt, would still be with us today. But that information had been withheld. You know, people weren't being accountable. People weren't acting in a responsible way. They were trying to hide things. Fast forward, we come across Mr. Lee. We were unsuccessful in keeping him alive overnight. Henry asked, what, what, what do I want to do? I'm like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going home. We're going to ditch the project. Wanted one mountain to do, one more day's worth of climbing, about six, seven hours worth of climbing. That's all that's left. I'm, I'm going to go back. And then all of a sudden you can hear like crunch, crunch, crunch outside. Because Dorji's 50 yards away in a different tent. You know, the, the, the Sherpas are Buddhist. They, they don't really dig death. Well, none of us dig death, but you know, it doesn't really vibe with them. Anyway, it comes back and there's a zip as a zip opens and his sort of flask of hot tea comes in and his big grinning face. He's a beautiful man. Uh, a big grinning face comes in and he looks at me, he looks at Mr. Lee, and he used very stark words. He's dead. Now there's no ambiguity in that phrase. He's dead. It's not he's passed away or he's no longer with us or he's gone on to a higher. He's dead. There, there's no negotiation in that and you know he's absolutely you know so what are we going to do and i adore you and he looks at me and goes no no we're in this together yeah, we're, we're here to climb the peaks he's dead there's if you go down now you're not honoring mr lee's life at all you're not doing him any good which i know sounds very callous but he's absolutely right and they, we can Translate that into a different, you know, slightly different environment. If something's happened, it's happened. And there's no point reminiscing over it. We have to move on. And it's, and how, it's, and it's how you deal exactly. with it. Exactly. Yeah. It's how you move on, what your next steps are. They are the important thing. And I was really close of making my next step to be in a downward direction. And Dorji just looked at it and goes, we have nothing else. Do it for me. Yeah, Dory and I have this deep relationship. He knows exactly how to pull the strings. And then all of a sudden, I am now invested in Dorji. I'm now doing it for him. Not necessarily for myself anymore. Now, I feel responsible to him. And, and that's really, really powerful. Really powerful. Yeah, let me just explain this another way. This is really interesting. I, I, for some reason, a number of my friends are Olympic rowers, or ex-Olympic rowers. And the fabulous Peter Reed, who unfortunately now is in a wheelchair, Alex Gregory. Now, these guys are, I mean, Peter Reed, for instance, highest or largest ever lung capacity ever recorded. And I interviewed Peter Reed on my own uh, podcast. And he was telling me about the dynamics in the Coxlicks for in, in the Olympics. And you would think, or I would have thought, that what you want are the four very best, strongest rowers. And Pete was like, no. That's not what you need. He goes, I was the engine. He goes, you know, I was an animal. I could pull those oars like nobody else. But there was no finesse to what I did. Meanwhile, you need a gearbox. He goes, the gearbox is Alex. 
So Alex was just the consummate rower. But more than that, he could galvanize the team. And they have something which I think they call seat races. And they will, will race and they will swap seats. And that's how you work out who actually makes the boat go faster. And it's not the strongest guys. It's not the guys that will pull 2,000 meters on an ergo faster than the next man. And, the, and the, the, the key is to get the other three or the seven or however many are in the boat, whether it's you know, Cox 4 or Cox 8, or make the other seven pull for you. That's how you make the boat go faster. And that's exactly what happened on Lotsey that day. I was no longer there for me. I wasn't climbing for me. I, Dorji had very cleverly made me invest into him. I was now there. I wanted to perform for Dorji. And it's the same thing in the boats. In, especially in the, in the eight, apparently, you get the one guy and the other seven are pulling. And Pete said, you can always not row. And the boat would still go faster because everybody is embedded to the other individuals. You are there for your teammates. You are pulling harder for the right people. And that's so translatable to so many different teams, no matter where they are, corporate world or or just wherever. It's about that depth of relationship, depth of understanding. But why are you doing it? Why are you doing it? And I think when you bring in that emotion, you bring in that, it's so powerful. But but, but you don't always get it. I I had some dealings with a lovely guy, uh, his name uh, eludes me. He used to open for Middlesex in cricket. And at the time, this is going back a few years, the culture at Middlesex was destructive. It was a damaged culture. And my friend would say, you would go to the crease willing your teammate, the other opening batsman, to fail. Because that would make your position that much stronger for the next game. Now, that's a destructive, damaged culture. That's never going to work. That's a culture all about the individual, not the collective. Whereas if you want to make the boat go faster... The culture has to be right. The culture between all those eight guys, or you know, bigger, because there's going to be like reserves and things. They, 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 they've got to be invested in one another. They've got to understand the culture. You've got to build that culture, build the trust. You're there for the other guy as much as you. And the fascinating thing with, and it's almost, I can't think of many other sports. It's not a case of Peter Reed won gold. It's the Coxless Four won gold. And very few sports are like that. Very, okay, maybe you're an individual scholar, but the team win. And, and that is, that's powerful. That's really, but it comes down to culture. You've got to get the culture right. Everybody is accountable to everybody else. And I'll, I want to touch on culture. A, it's dear to my heart, but if you look at it from a big mountain climbing perspective, it's an absolute melting pot of cultures. It's highly topical now around the world in terms of diversity, diversity of thought. But I just want to, you know, especially, again, we've talked about this before, just in terms of if you look at it from an Everest perspective, you've got the um, Nepalese culture and just how important that's become as part of your life. But what have you learned and gained? And again, I'm just thinking about as well, when I say it's a melting pot of cultures, it's not just obviously the Nepalese, is it, people come from all over the world in order to gather in one place. And, and you've talked about now the sort of scale of something like base camp and, and, and just so many culture that are there. But what have you learned and gained from that cultural exposure and, and how has it changed you over the years? 
I, I think one of the biggest things is, is tolerance. Tolerance and understanding. Everybody's different. Everybody's going to have a different outlook on life. And that's, that's totally fine. Uh, and it's down to us as individuals to understand that. Uh, I, I forget who the author is. I, I'm, I'm reading a book at the moment. And it's fascinating. Uh, it's, it's something along the lines of uh, how to talk to idiots. And because it's easy for us to think about other cultures or, or, or people that we don't understand. You know, oh, well, they're, they're idiots. Because they have a different outlook to, to our own outlook. But actually, if, if we are going to develop and grow and become the best versions of, of ourselves, we need to have that diversity. You know, we, we need to look at other cultures that we don't understand and learn from it. We need to look at other religions. I mean, I've already mentioned I'm not religious, but I can learn from religion. I can learn from where religion have got it right and where religion have got it wrong. I can go to Nepal or India or Pakistan or Bhutan or South America where they, they, they're culturally poles apart and pick certain things. Oh, I really like that. I, I love the way that that works. Now, as, as simple as that down in Argentina last year, the asado, right, the, the, the archetypal barbecue. Yeah, and of course, you know, I'm plant-based now, but you know, huge amounts of red meat and you know, it's, it's a social gathering. And we were there. And of course, with that comes the, the red wine. And there's a big group of mountain guides around the asado. One guy in charge of the asado is his asado. So he doesn't like people interfering. So tolerance, understanding. And then maybe eight or nine of us, a couple of bottles of wine. But there's only like three cups or three glasses. And the glass is being handed around. And you'd be sitting there, you know, stood there or you know, with your glass of wine. And somebody would, would literally, a virtual stranger, take the glass off of you and be drinking your wine. You know, well, that's a bit weird. That's a bit strange. Typically, our culture thinks that we go to dinner or we have our barbecue and we all pour our wine. Why does that wine become ours? And certainly the culture, I mean, deepest, darkest Argentina where we were, it, it, was, it was a collective. It wasn't my wine or your wine, it's our wine. And I, I loved that. You know, I loved what that generated among everybody. It was a, a, a deep bonding you know, around a wine glass. And I was like, wow, you know, why, why did we all sit there with our own? Okay, okay, you could go, well, there's health reasons or COVID, it's not COVID. I mean, whatever. You know, put, put that to one side. That anecdotal story, I didn't understand it. I didn't get it. I'm like, God, he's just pinched my wine. No. It's not my wine. It's our wine. And I think one of my greatest learnings is go to these new places with an open mind, no preconceived ideas, no judgment. Just look at why they do these things. Why do they operate that way? Why, why do they all live in one room? Why, why do children sleep with their parents until they're 12, 13, 14? Just because we don't do it in this country anymore doesn't mean that's right and they're wrong. Why? Why did it do that? You know, it's was it Roger Kipling, the poem that he wrote, "Elephant's Choice." Was it? I keep I keep counsel of six serving men. They are trying to get this right. Six. So it's who and why and what and where and when and how. I know what is the how. Anyway, it's they are the questions. 
Now, and this is Kipling wrote that in the 30s. Now, they are the key questions we have to ask ourselves. I keep counsel of six serving men. Now, why? Why did it do it? How did it do that? When did it do that? What did it do? These are questions that we should constantly ask ourselves. If we go there with a closed mind, we're not going to ask any questions. We can go there with a bigoted mindset and we're going to come back going, well, they don't know what they're doing. How do we grow with that? That's not a growth mindset. So yeah, my biggest learning from my travels and arguably with my climbing is go with an open mind, go to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Learn no, from I, others. I, 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 well, certainly my experience and certainly different to yours in terms of our careers, but, but just in terms of you learn so much from those different perspectives, trying to take yourself out of where you are and actually put yourself in the Ocado situation. You know, it's like taking yourself out of the, the boy from Slough and putting yourself there and actually looking at it from their perspective is, is just such an important thing. Yeah. I think you hit the nail. Look at it from their perspective, put yourself, no, not even in their shoes, look at it through their eyes. And what do you see? And what you learn. Completely. As a podcast for and about distinctive leaders, what would you say are the top three characteristics of a distinctive leader? Uh, honesty has got to be one. It's open and honest. And you have to be available. You, you don't necessarily, I mean, we've already talked about it, you know, the guy in the boat. You don't need to be the strongest. You don't need to be the fastest. You don't need to be the bravest. But you need to be there. And, and I, I, I also think it's super important to lead by example, to be true to your values and not necessarily deviate from that. But yeah, I, I, there's about five there. But, but yeah, value-based leadership is really important. And yeah, we, we're not going to dive into it too much, but, but look around the world. Now look at some of our global leaders. Uh, are they being honest? Are they being true to their values? Are they leading by example? it's tricky to put your hand on your heart and say, yes, they are. Is there a distinctive leader that springs to mind now, somebody that you've really looked up to that you actually do value? And I'm looking at your face here and it probably won't be one of our, one of our sort of political leaders right now, but, but is there somebody uh, in no matter what field, no matter whether they're within your very close vicinity, but is there somebody that you think is a, a distinctive yeah, leader? I, I think, uh, so he's a, he's a friend of mine, uh, Richard Walker. So Sir Malcolm Walker's son, uh, so he's the current CEO of the Iceland Group, uh, frozen supermarket. I, I really admire what, what they're trying to do, not only from an environmental perspective for a supermarket globally to step up to the plate, to be accountable and say, we are going to take out all plastic from our own products by, I think it was 2023. Now, I know some of the hurdles and some of the challenges that they're facing because of that. But more than that, you know, Rich's ability to inspire his team. And let's face it, if you are a checkout girl in a supermarket, it'd be very easy to look down your nose and, and pour scorn on that. But they are the very people that, at, that who are at the core of what Iceland do. You know, they're on the coalface, for want of a phrase. And Rich's ability to not only push his environmental agenda, uh, Rich and told me once that his book's fantastic. I think it's in his book called The Green Grocer. And he said, okay, to be a sustainable business, you need to, it's three, three arms. Okay, you've got the environment sustainability, you've got the sort of profitability and you've got your customers and they need to live in harmony. 
And it needs to be right for the customer. It needs to be right for the business. And it needs to be right for the environment. And if any one of those is out, out of kilter, it's, it's simply not going to work. And that was a real epiphany when I heard it. Because I, I was like, okay, well, we need to do this because it's the right thing to do for the environment. Well, that's great. But if we're pushing that really hard and all of a sudden we're not getting customers through the door, then we're not going to make an impact anymore. And his ability to navigate that and then project that to all his staff in you know, some as, you know, some sectors of his business, you know, food warehouse, for instance, is not particularly glamorous, but he is steering that ship with purpose. And I think he's steering it to remarkable results from an environmental perspective for service given to his clients, but also as a business. Uh, yeah, so, so Richard is definitely somebody that I admire. Uh, Dale Vince, for instance, uh, Dale Ecotricity. Again, you know, Ecotricity, I think I might say, it's, it's, certainly was the world's first sort of environmentally friendly, you know, sustainable electricity company. Yep, stepping, stepping out of the norm, being the, the outlier, being the anarchist, and saying, we can do this in a different way. And then bringing with him you know, his team. You know, it's, it's fantastic. You know, Musk is another one. I know Musk is quite a controversial character. I was lucky enough to meet him a number of years ago. I met him for maybe five minutes, four minutes. I walked away thinking I had just met a true visionary game changer. Now that's leadership right there. If you speak to Musk, he probably wouldn't say he's a, lead, uh, he's a leader. He's an engineer. You know, he says he's misunderstood. He's not a businessman. He's an engineer. But he's doing great things. And he's putting people along with him. Uh, he doesn't always get it right. But then who does? Well, I, I think that's a trait of a distinctive leader. They don't always get it right. And I think we've heard that from some of our guests before, is that, you know, it's about learning and about making those sort of mistakes. Lastly, at Leithwaite, our core purpose is to create meaningful change through exceptional people. What one meaningful piece of change would you like to see in the world in the future? I, I think we have, you know, in the light of COP26, what's just happened up in Glasgow, I, I think what we need to do, we need to take, it, comes, it keeps coming back, doesn't it? The same thing keeps coming up. We need to take responsibility for our, our actions. Now, business is great. Uh, economic growth is great. But it's going to be utterly meaningless if we don't have an environment to operate in. And I think short to medium term, it's critical that we all understand that we all need to do our bit, no matter how small we think it might be. And it might be as simple as doing the recycling. It may be eat less meat. It may be jump on your bicycle rather than take the car. Or whatever it is, we need to action change. Because unfortunately, our global leaders seem to be, they think they're hand-tied and it's going to take public swell to initiate the change. It's in our hands. We can initiate change. And I think certainly short to medium term, that's going to be absolutely critical. I would love to see a societal shift in the way that we look after what's most precious to us. And that's our, our ecosystem, our environment, our planet. Kenton Cool. Thank you very much indeed for being a guest on Distinctive Leaders. Thank you, Wally. I called you Andy all the way through, but I get to call you Wally at, <laughs> at the end. No, I appreciate your time and your questions. And um, yeah, seeing as it's the first one you've done face to face, I think you've got a voice for radio. There we go. <laughs> Thanks, Kenton. 
I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Distinctive Leaders podcast and got as much out of listening to it as I did recording it. If you did, I'd be hugely grateful if you could take 30 seconds to give the show a review on iTunes, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. If you have any suggestions for what could make this podcast more beneficial for you, be it topic ideas, guest recommendations, or anything else, please feel free to get in touch at andrew.wallace at leithwaite.com. Thank you so much for listening.